electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You hear it everywhere after the data this week. The U.S. is already in recession, but not so fast. We also got strong readings on the labor market. Is it just lagging data, or is it painting a very different picture of the economy? And what does it all mean for your investments? We do have some answers. And the State of the Unions. Apple, Amazon, Starbucks, all facing battles with labor. We'll get the latest on each and the impact it's having and will continue to have on their stocks. Plus, we'll get you ready for the second half of the year with three buys and a bail for the back half of 2022. First, let's begin with these markets on this first trading day of July. Uh, follow me as I carefully make my way over here. The Dow is down 91 points today. The S&P down 14. The Nasdaq down 67. So modest declines here, continuing the tone we saw in the first half of the year. We got that disappointing ISM data this morning. Uh, we'll get to more of that in a moment. Big story of the day. Ten-year note, 2.9 on the money. Unbelievable drop here. We've seen this week. We were over 315 on Tuesday. We've steadily moved lower. Lower market inflation expectations. Lower core PCE rating uh, readings all factoring into that lower price pressures in the ISM data this morning. Now, because of this, the home builders are having a great day despite an unexpected drop in construction spending. Pulte seeing the biggest gains. It's up more than 5%. Remember, strong housing data in April came as mortgage rates moderated the first time around, and maybe we could be getting some moderation again. Elsewhere, Micron sliding on a weaker-than-expected sales outlook, downgrade uh, from buy to neutral over at B of A. That's not helping. Shares are down more than 5%. They're downgrade of course, is on weak PC and smartphone demand and uncomfortable levels, as they describe it, of inventory. Also want to mention Kohl's, which is sharply lower on this double whammy of bad news. First of all, lowering their second quarter outlook on weakening consumer demand. We've heard this before with the likes of Target and terminating talks to sell its business to franchise group. That's the vitamin shop owner, KSS Shares, plunging 19 percent today. So now let's look at the data that has everyone screaming recession. We learned a lot this week. And while it definitely shows a slowing economy, it wasn't all bad. Starting on Monday, when pending home sales surprised to the upside, that April increase broke a six-month streak of declines. Again, those lower temporarily mortgage rates playing into that. Now on Tuesday, a fresh reminder of the bad mood of the consumer. Consumer confidence fell almost five points to a 16-month low. Wednesday made it official. Real GDP, real GDP shrank at a 1.6% annualized rate in the first quarter. Got worse yesterday when the Atlanta Fed's second quarter tracker also fell into negative territory. Does that mean we're in recession? Not necessarily. Thursday, we also learned that jobless claims, a leading gauge of labor market strength, actually fell last week and remain at a historically calm level. No signs of a real slowdown here. The PCE price index showing some moderation as well. Today, the ISM manufacturing gauge, also a leading indicator, 
It did drop three points, stayed at 53 into expansion territory. New orders fell into contraction, though. So as mentioned, the bond market already taking all of this as a sign the Fed will be a lot less aggressive in the months to come. But is the market getting ahead of itself? Joining me now is Michael Darda. He's MKM Partners chief economist and chief macro strategist. No one else I'd rather talk to today, Mike, going into the long weekend especially. So as you see this, is the U.S. economy slowing dangerously? Are we in recession? How soon is the Fed going to need to pivot to rate cuts, do you think? Yeah, it's a pretty confusing picture, Kelly. So I do think we're slowing, but that's a good thing if we were growing way too fast and the primary primary risk and concern was high and elevated and sustained inflation. And so we need to slow. Uh, slowing is a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, you know, it is kicking up some fears of recession, uh, but I think we need to be very clear about what a recession is. It's simply not two down quarters of GDP. That's sort of the shorthand that everybody believes. But technically, a recession is defined by the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, that defines business cycles for the U.S., as a period of falling production, sales, income, and employment that usually lasts more than a few months. If you want a singular indicator to define a recession for the U.S., it really shouldn't be GDP. It probably should be the unemployment rate. If you look back at every single recession since the end of World War II, the unemployment rate has risen at least 2.2 percentage points from pre-recession trough to post-recession peak. And where are we right now? 3.6%. I just brought up the data. We're essentially at the cycle lows. Now, that might change in the future, but that is a prediction, not something that's already occurred. Yes. And, and again, the, the first half, the weakness in real GDP is really because of inflation, not because demand is slowing. It's because demand was too hot. It all went into nominal. It all went into inflation. It didn't leave us anything left over. When I've we've pointed this out sort of as the week has progressed, a lot of people say, fine, on the labor market, but that it's a lagging indicator. And what would you say in response? I mean, there are leading ways to look at the labor market. I mentioned jobless claims. We get you know hiring and layoff notices, that sort of thing. The mood seems to be that we are going to abruptly shift into a sharp downturn in, I suppose, hiring and a jump in the unemployment rate. Right. Well, Certainly, you know, you can't eliminate that as a risk factor. The level of the unemployment rate is a lagging indicator, but the change, the 12-month change, is about a perfect coincident indicator, perfectly coincident. So, you know, if people are focused on GDP, you can focus on the unemployment rate. If you're looking at year-over-year changes, it's actually coincident instead of lagging. You mentioned jobless claims. They're off the lows, but they're still at incredibly historically low levels and kind of going sideways now. So we can continue to watch that. But I would just try to remind the viewers, we have some very good news here on the front edge of the inflation trade that's rolled over quite hard. Inflation expectations at the five-year horizon are down more than a full percentage point now from the late March levels. Yeah, That's pretty significant. That's good news. That means the Fed is regaining credibility. They're getting traction with their rate hikes and with the you know, initial movements in the, in the balance sheet, which have effectively just started. So if the Fed doesn't have to do all that much and it can get inflation to come down. I mean, that's a good story, not a negative story. 
And let's, we've also seen a yeah, absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Well, sorry. as I want to hear the rest of your thought, and maybe you could just end it by saying what you think the implications are for the market, because you were very concerned earlier this year, rightly so. Uh, we've had a massive valuation reset. The Fed is catching up now. The market is is adjusting. Are you bullish for the back half? Yeah, I think the market's attractive here. Uh, we came into the year where the market was stretched on valuations relative to earnings and interest rates, but also relative to liquidity. We've had a big liquidity slowdown, but the market has dropped more than 20% year to date. So this is not the time to get negative on equities. The time for caution was earlier in the year when everyone was bullish, not now after a 20% uh, slide. Consider this, your average recession bear market is just over 30%. So if we're already more than two thirds of the way there, why get negative now? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, if we avoid a recession, there's probably a lot of upside. And if there is a recession, the bulk of the recession bear market is behind us now anyway. So this is not a time to be negative on equity markets. We'll see what the macro data does. But I fear that a lot of retail investors are just waking up to the fact that the market's down a lot and they're going to sell at the lows. And that does tend to happen over and over again. Quick final question, Mike, because it is July 1 now. So even if we were going into recession this calendar year, we should start to know by now. And yes, the ISM survey dropped, but you mentioned the four factors we'd need to see in broad decline. And I don't think any one of them were seeing a decline. So is it even possible that we could be in recession in the back half or does this already have to be a 2023 call? You know, honestly, I don't see a recession this year. I guess that's becoming a minority view from the headlines that I read. Uh, but watch the labor market data pretty closely. We'll watch payrolls, figures, what's happening to the unemployment rate. Typically, before a recession, you actually get T-bill yields up well above bond yields, the 10-year yield. And even though the 10-year yield is coming down now, that gap is still positive, well over 100 basis points. And that's a long leading indicator, not a lagging indicator. So I don't really see the recession story um, coming, you know, coming true here for 2022. We can talk about you know, risks down the line, but at least for this year, I think it's simply growth is slow. That's a good thing. It's creating a perception you know, that we're falling into a recession because inflation has been high in some sectors of the economy are going into reverse gear. But services spending is still quite strong. You know, That's two-thirds of overall spending, four-fifths of job growth uh, and, you know, and income growth. And, and so I, I think people are getting a little too pessimistic on the business cycle here. All right. Michael Darda, thank you so much for your time today. It's great to check in with you. Thanks. Joining me from MKM Partners. Let's turn from the macro to the markets now, dig a little deeper into these uh, themes. My next guest says that what matters isn't the negative GDP issue that we saw, for instance, in the first half of the year, but rather the inflation trajectory. And she's starting to add some risk to her portfolio slowly. Joining me now is Nancy Tangler, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Great to see you, Nancy. What's your mood in a nutshell here? Well, that was a great interview, Kelly, with Michael. I, I, I think he's right on many fronts. Uh, we don't we don't think we're in a recession either, and we think that if we get one, we'll get it in 2023. But we're we're clearly slowing. And I thought the uh, ISM manufacturing numbers today were actually quite encouraging because we're seeing slow slow slowing down in new orders. Prices paid came down, and then delivery times came down, and so inventories are starting to clear out. And we're, we're noting that um, many of the manufacturers are not ordering 
uh, as as rapidly as they were in the second half of last year. So all of that is is good news for what the Fed is trying to achieve. And frankly, they've been you know I've been very critical of the Fed, but they've been quite clever in using rhetoric. Uh, to hmm. encourage the bond market and the stock market to do the heavy lifting. You know, it, it seems they are finally believing Powell when he says this. is, And he repeated it again earlier this week, saying inflation is the number one issue and we will take whatever happens to the economy in order to make sure that we conquer it. Yeah, agreed. And I, I mean, it's a, a lot a lot late, but um, welcome nonetheless. So we're we're focused now on what's the earnings picture going to look like in the second half of this year. We had already moved defensive in anticipation of slowing growth, not that we anticipated uh, Russia invading Ukraine uh, and adding to that, but we knew we were slowing. And so we got more defensive at the end of last year and in the summer of last year. And now we're starting to, to add back in some risk, Kelly, and also um, sniffing around in the bond market. So, you know, a couple of weeks back, I guess about a month ago, we started building some bond ladders for our clients that um, had been out. We'd taken them out of the bond market in August of 2020 when the 10-year Treasury yield got to 50 basis points. What does adding risk in the stock market look like for you? What are some names or sectors, you know, because there have been plenty where it feels like we've had a one-time surge, you know, all of the ARC names, for lack of a, of a better characterization. Those business models now look to be fundamentally repriced and maybe repriced for good. Who knows? It's going to take them a long time to kind of win the street back over. What are the parts of the market where you would be comfortable adding risk here? Well, of course, you know, we, we we do like the cloud names. I've talked about those for a long time. It seems like the the previous decade I was talking about healthcare all the time. And and now it's really the, the cloud and cybersecurity names that um, we think are really long runway, total addressable markets uh, with a real secular tailwind behind them. And so we would look at something like a service now as we have and add in, in small increments. There's no rush. So to your viewers, take your time, be disciplined. Um, but that's that's a name that has a deflationary impact and improving productivity impact on corporate um, earnings. And so we can we expect to continue to see movement toward their product line. Same with Palo Alto Network. But it's not just technology. We recently added Lululemon into our growthier portfolios and Spotify, kind of a defensive, reliable grower in this environment doesn't have all the problems that Netflix has. We have to be home um, to, to use the product, but it has been uh, painted with the same brush. And so, we, you know, we we want to take advantage of those discounts. And that's those are the kinds of names we've been picking away at on the riskier side. Very interesting. Quick final question. Not that Chanos is shorting the cloud. I mean, it's specifically data center REITs with like an 80 times forward PE. But is there any read through, as you mentioned, into the cloud or cyber names that you like here? I don't think so. I think, um, you know, it's an interesting and provocative short. I, I think he may be wrong on this one, but, you know, he's been around a long time and is a lot smarter than I am. We own Equinix, for example, and uh, we, we don't see what he's seeing um, in, in in the numbers. So, why, you know. Why are they trading at 80 times forward? I don't know if Equinix is. I think Datadog and some of the others were, Nancy, but that does seem high. <laughs> Well, yeah, Equinix is not, but yes, you're right. I think I think part of it is because people were looking for places within the REIT uh, industry to or sector 
to to find some exposure that wasn't housing related. And so there was a lot of chasing around. Prologis is another one that that kind of got bid up real fast. We own um, public storage. We like the digitization story and um, you know the steady kind of earnings growth. But yeah, th- there was a lot of chasing, I think, uh, for some looking for safety in, yeah. a, in a risky, safe environment. Well, I misspoke. Uh, Datadog isn't 80 times forward earnings, about 135 if this data is right. So uh, yes. Nancy Tangler, thanks for joining me. Uh, everything from data centers to Lulu to uh, the broader market. Appreciate it. Have a great fourth. You too, Kelly. All right. Thank appreciate you. it. Coming up, it's been a rough year for Meta so far. Facebook parent, it's lost more than half of its value. But one analyst now says Facebook and Instagram are poised to dethrone TikTok as the short-form king of content, and it could happen as early as next year. He'll join me next to make his case. Plus, the State of the Unions. We're looking at how workers are organizing at Apple, Amazon, Starbucks, and others, and the impact it'll have on the companies and their shareholders. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. When you think short format, quick laughs, or a fun dance to learn, you think TikTok. It's estimated that the social company will have 755 million monthly global users this year, and its market share in social networking topping 20%. But our next guest says don't count Meta out just yet. The behemoth is on its way to digital short dominance. Joining us now is Yusuf Scully, Managing Director at Truist. Yusuf, this is not what the market seems to think right now. We can't see TikTok's valuation, of course, but Meta's has certainly been clobbered. Exactly. Um, Thanks, Kelly, for having me again. So our basically contention is obviously since 2016, when um, Douyin, which is the parent or the Chinese version of TikTok started uh, to today, where generated by 2021, something like $20 billion dollars with roughly 20% of that outside of China. The others, honestly, were were asleep at the switch. They were all caught flat-footed. But starting in 2020, i.e. a couple of years ago, we started to see really aggressive moves by Facebook or Meta in particular, first initially with Instagram and last year with Facebook, the blue app. We've seen um, uh, YouTube with their shorts starting to aggressively pursue this opportunity last year. Uh, we've seen also Snap um, with their earned version, Spotlight. And so the takeaway here is 
after only a short one to two years of the American social players starting to trying to catch up, we're seeing some real traction um, in first user engagement. Yeah. So by the end of this year, we think Facebook is going to be close to a billion dollar, a, a billion users. And over time, i.e. starting literally this year, monetization is also starting to come to to catch up. I mean, I, and I, so by 2023, we think we estimate that TikTok will see the the uh, the king position to meta. Wow. You think that, that meta that let's just call it Instagram, because I, I have a hard time believing it's anything that you think Instagram's going to dethrone TikTok next year. So it's between Instagram and the blue app if you add them both. But within the two, we think Instagram is going to account for about two thirds. So maybe Instagram by itself will not dethrone TikTok. But if you add both um, and basically aggregate reels, volume, reels, revenues, we do believe that within the next 18 months, i.e. by the end of 2023, maybe early 2024, Meta should become the, the, the number one player outside of China in short form video. And yes. listen, any pressure, you know, TikTok right now with this whole issue about whether it's actually storing data on those Oracle servers or not and, and further clamp down would, uh, if it truly clamps down on usage or access, obviously would help Meta. What do you think the shares would be trading at if, if everyone felt the same way you do about its potential to dethrone TikTok next year? Well, so that's a hard question to answer only because there are a number of pressure points, right? You have the macro issues, you have uh, user privacy issues, you have metaverse investments. And those are real issues that Meta continues to, you know, kind of struggle with, have to explain away, et cetera. The fourth issue, competition, we're saying shouldn't really be on everybody's mind as the top issue because we're seeing positive uh, traction there. So if you kind of put that aside and just focus on the others, look, the stock today is trading around six, seven times EBITDA, trading around 12, 13 times PE, and this is effectively gap PE. We think that's really uber cheap. Our price target is literally double where it is right now, where it's trading right now. So maybe take, a, I don't know, a 30, 50% discount to that, and you're still justifying at least a 50% jump uh, in, in, in the stock over the next 12 to 18 months versus where it's trading today. You know, it's fascinating because this would be stories all over again, obviously, where they Instagram copied stories from Snapchat, had great success. Um, it, it would maybe help or, or hurt Facebook's dealing with regulators, though. I mean, that's been the story for the past several years. So do, do we want them to succeed in this or, or, or not? Is that success a sign of its dominance? I mean, it, it seems like both things can't be true at the same time. Well, look, I mean, there's no, you, 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 can't, you can't hide the fact that Facebook um, still down or Meta has 70% market share of social spend, right? But then Google, within search, they have 95% market share. Um, so to the extent that they're not necessarily uh, discriminating against competitors or making it hard for smaller players to compete, it's really hard for the regulators to come after it. And to your point, and it's a really important point, up until now, TikTok has really seen very, very little regulatory pressures. Under Trump, we saw the beginning of that, and then that went away. If it comes back, then I think the regulators are going to be all over TikTok because there is even less visibility into the algo of TikTok. There is less visibility into what TikTok is doing with the data, et cetera. So relative to the two, you know, certainly as an American, you value uh, or you want 
a Facebook or, or, or Google to keep doing better. It's fascinating. I mean, if, if anything ever did really happen to shut down TikTok, the careers and fortunes that would be at stake, they'd have to migrate quickly uh, to Meta or, or, like you said, I think see you're bullish on Snap as well to some rival. You know, it's not a theoretical exercise, right? Because we've seen that happen in India. We've seen it happen in Pakistan. We've seen it happen in, in a half dozen countries where TikTok is still basically where TikTok has been removed from the Google Play Store and the Apple uh, App Store. So it's not just theoretical. It All could right. happen. Yusuf Squally, Scully, she said. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate your time today. We, we, thank you. Thank you. Provocative call. Coming up, 2022 has turned back the clock on clean energy. Fossil fuel stocks soaring along with prices while renewables get hammered. Could the second half see a reversal of fortune? We'll explore that. And just as supply chain pressures start to ease, the chips get crushed again. This time as a key piece of legislation gets held up, a look at what it means for the companies and the state that's banking on an Intel manufacturing plant that's coming up on The Exchange. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lift or Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're right about in the middle of the range for markets right now, which have been higher and lower by almost 300 points for the Dow today. We're currently down 33, the S&P down 7, the Nasdaq down 48. Now, energy was the worst sector in June, and oil snapped a six-month win streak with its 6% drop last month. Still, it notched its ninth straight positive quarter, which is its longest streak going back to the contract's inception in 1983. So we are still coming off some strong gains here. Elsewhere, copper is falling to a 17-month low and is on pace for its fourth straight negative week. This is part of the commodity reset that we were talking about with Michael Darda a little bit earlier. Bitcoin bouncing back above 19,000 after its June swoon. It's down 40% in the past month and nearly 60% since January, just above 19,000 or so today. We'll have full coverage tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Crypto Night in America. I've seen some special guests around here. You don't want to miss it. Now to Eamon Javers for a CNBC News update. Eamon? Hey there, Kelly. An arraignment today for the 49-year-old Kentucky man accused of opening fire on law enforcement officers attempting to serve a warrant last night, killing two of them and wounding several others. Cash bond now set at $10 million. A national police union says shootings of officers are up 19 percent from this time last year, and last year's total was the highest since it started tracking attacks back in 2015. In Wisconsin, a three-year-old is dead after shooting himself with a gun. A 28-year-old woman has been arrested in connection to the incident. Police aren't saying how she's connected to the child, but they're urging gun owners to keep their firearms locked and away from children. And an advocate for, gun, uh, for reducing gun violence will be one of the people receiving a Presidential Medal of Freedom next week. 
The White House says today that President Biden will honor Gabby Giffords, who survived a gun attack when she was a member of Congress. Now, tonight on the news, I'll be sitting in for Chef Smith, and we'll look at efforts to save water by recycling it. Kelly, over to you. Sounds good. Eamon, thank you very much, and I'll see you soon. Still ahead, as labor movements gain steam across the country, where do things stand for some of the biggest companies in the world? We have full team coverage on Apple, Amazon, and Starbucks. A look at the latest and the implications for investors next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Today marks the end of a contract that covers more than 22,000 workers at 29 West Coast ports. The negotiations are ongoing. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh has said they're going well. It's just the latest high-profile labor fight as unionization efforts seemingly sweep the nation. So we're focusing on the state of the unions at some of the world's largest companies today. Steve Kovac has the latest on all things Apple. Deirdre Bosa is following the fight at Amazon. And Kate Rogers is looking at the ongoing efforts percolating at Starbucks. Steve, let's start with you. Yeah, Kelly, let me give you a rundown where we're at with Apple and unionization. So a few weeks ago, the first Apple store to unionize happened in Towson, Maryland. Now, Apple was against these unionization efforts. They kind of gave this standard anti-union messaging, such as, you know, we might not be able to give you vacation time or might not be as flexible with hours as we could be today without a union. But at the same time, this vote was successful and Apple is not appealing. They are going to work directly with this union in Towson, Maryland uh, to, to negotiate a contract. And this is a sign of how it will handle future unionization efforts. Now, Apple got ahead of this by raising pay to start at $22 an hour before it was 20 bucks an hour. But still, some of these unions, especially the ones that um, the ones in New York and other big cities are asking for as much as $30 per hour to start because of the cost of living is so high. But here's the thing that really gets me what we hear from uh, other uh, organizers of companies. You know, maybe it's a lot of angst and anger towards their employer. But when I speak to the Apple employees who are organizing, they actually love Apple. They love their jobs. One woman told me uh, who's organizing at an Atlanta store. She's like, I just love engaging with my community, teaching people to how to use these products. So it's not necessarily that they're angry at Apple or don't like working at Apple, but they just want a seat at the table, Kelly. It's a fascinating one. Steve, stay right there. Let's turn to Amazon, where warehouse workers in New York voted to organize for the first time this past spring. But unionization efforts, in contrast to Apple's with Amazon, have been particularly contentious. Deirdre Bosa has the latest. Deirdre? And Kelly, I was just going to say what Steve just described could not be more opposite to what you're seeing at Amazon. It has been a lot more contentious. And instead of working with unions, Amazon has been fighting those efforts. And the backdrop here is that Amazon has become the country's second largest employer. So as e-commerce surged over the pandemic, so did its warehouse workforce. The union battles now at three fulfillment centers. They're more about just wages and working conditions at stake or Amazon's efficiency and massive logistics network. And it comes at a time when shares are under pressure. And CEO Andy Jassy, coming up to closing out on his first year on the job, faced challenges on a number of other fronts. Now, unions may not even be Amazon's only labor issue. Recode got a hold of a leaked internal research document that said the company could actually run out of people to hire by 2024 due to its exceptionally high turnover rate. It could essentially churn 
through the available labor pool by then. And that stat could actually give more ammunition to union advocates. And this comes after one group scored a major win in Staten Island. And it also comes as other warehouses are looking to begin their own union push, Kelly. Absolutely. And Deirdre, stay there as well. Let's get the state on Starbucks, which arguably kicked off this wave of organized labor earlier this year. Kate Rogers has the latest on what's brewing, Kate. Yeah, Kelly, this started last summer in August when the first workers in Buffalo, New York, said they were petitioning to organize. And since then, there are some 180 stores that have voted yes on unionizing, 32 that have voted no, over 200 held votes with no signs of slowing down so far. Remember, though, while these numbers are certainly a win for the union, there are some 9,000 Starbucks locations around the country. These stores represent a small fraction of those. So for the investor crowd, this is far from reaching critical mass, despite the amount of votes being held weekly. If customers start to kind of bristle at the back and forth, that could be bad for Starbucks. And Howard Schultz is back at the helm as CEO, and he's repeatedly said the company really does not want a third party in between its relationship with its employees or partners, as it calls them. The company is also facing 212 open unfair labor practice charges against it from the NLRB. Meanwhile, the union has just won against it. Regional NLRB offices have sided so far with the union and many await hearings before administrative law judges. And, you know, it's been interesting to kind of watch that push and pull because the regional offices do kind of seem to be siding with the employees, which could be important when we're talking about Apple and Amazon as as all of these fights move forward. Have we seen, Steve, any other tech giants grappling? I mean, not that Amazon isn't, but that's a little bit different retail issue. Um, Have we seen any of the other ones grappling with these issues? Yeah, Kelly, Microsoft, this is the other company I follow closely, and they actually came out earlier this this spring saying, look, we're open to working with unions, and this is in part because they're going through this $69 billion acquisition of the video game company Activision, and they really want to get this deal done. The FTC uh, chair, Lena Khan, and her colleagues have already kind of signaled that they're going to take into account culture and labor issues into the, whether or not they approve the deal. And that might not be their purview, but Microsoft is really desperate to make this happen. So you can kind of see this as a signal saying, look, we're open to working with labor. Activision has a lot of cultural problems. In fact, a small group of employees just a few weeks ago voted to form a a successful union. And Microsoft is taking the same tone that we heard from Apple. Look, if you want to organize, we'll we'll sit with you at the table. We're not going to appeal the decision and we'll be partners with you instead of working against you. Very different than what we're hearing from Amazon and Starbucks. And on that note, Deirdre, it's interesting because tech is also the same place where we've seen a lot of the layoff announcements emanating from. Mm -hmm. Obviously, much more of the IPO candidates, you know, or pre-IPO candidates, the SPACs, you know, anything crypto related. Mm -hmm. But There's this push and pull now where never has labor had more power, I guess. And at the same time, is that power already starting to weaken a bit? Yeah, and something that we talk a lot about on Tech Check is stock-based compensation, right? A lot of the tech companies um, use equity to help compensate their workers. And with valuations coming down, both in public and private markets, it raises a lot of questions as to, you know, how employees are feeling at those companies, how they get compensated when they've seen their options come down by so much. And there's a thinking that perhaps their companies are going to have to spend more cash, some of which have it and some which don't. Um, but it's a huge conversation here happening in the Valley and companies continue to contend with it, not just at tech companies. But, you know, you also mentioned, you asked Steve what other big tech companies are dealing with this. Alphabet, too, don't forget, it's in a much different way than Amazon, which is dealing with it at the warehouse level. But engineers at Google have actually formed a union as well. Hmm. 
engineers at Google. <laughs> okay. Kate, we know that it's not just Starbucks facing uh, these issues on the restaurant side of it, but they do seem to be the most prominent target. Yeah, certainly. The only other name I'd mention here, Chipotle workers in one location in Maine petitioned for a union vote. There's no set date yet for them to actually vote. Chipotle is in a very different position here than Starbucks. It has a smaller footprint of stores, might be a little easier to control worker expectations, make sure they're all on the same page and get in there, talk to them and work with them early on. Starbucks has many more stores. So this kind of, you know, spiraled and picked up steam very, very quickly. Um, and Chipotle did say it respects its employees' rights and it, you know, will be committed to ensuring fair, just, and humane work environment. So they, too, look like they are going to work with their workers if they do go down this path and do vote yes on unionizing. But I'd like to just follow up on what Steve said about the Apple workers really loving their jobs. Starbucks baristas here, they say that they love their jobs, too. And even if they're not necessarily around to see this all come to fruition, all the things and the changes they're fighting for. They want it to be better for their fellow baristas in the future. So I think that's been a really common thread. And one other name I'd mention is McDonald's. We know workers have been trying to organize there for years right. with Fight for 15. That has been less successful. But uh, McDonald's is mostly franchised. Remember, more than 95% are franchised, and Starbucks are mostly company-owned here. So it's a very, very different footprint. True, a little easier to fight big corporate in that mm -hmm. sense. All right, that's it, the 2022 State of the Union. Thank you, everybody, very, very much. Much. Steve Kovac, Deirdre Bosa, and Kate Rogers. Seal ahead. It was supposed to help transform the Rust Belt, but over the fight in over funding in Congress, it's delaying Intel's plans to build a chip plant in Ohio. Intel shares are down nearly 7% this week. Scott Cohn is live on the ground for us in Ohio with more. Scott? Hey, Kelly, yeah, Intel has plans for a massive semiconductor manufacturing facility here in central Ohio, biggest on the planet. But first, they want money, big money from Congress. And if they don't get it, they just may take some of that business to Europe. Are they serious or just bluffing? A top states for business special report coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. Intel shares down 3% today, 7% this week. The company has or had big plans in Ohio, hoping to use money from the CHIPS Act to build a new plant there. Then came this tweet from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Quote, let me be perfectly clear. There will be no bipartisan USICA. That's the name of the broader package that includes money for the chips industry. As long as Democrats are pursuing a partisan reconciliation bill. Again, that from Leader McConnell. So with funding delayed, so too is the groundbreaking of this plant. Scott Cohn traveled to Ohio for more on the potential fallout. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, speaking with us exclusively, has big plans for Intel. I truly believe that this is the Midwest time. I, I believe it's Ohio's time. So does the president of the Ohio State University, just 20 miles from Intel's site. It's something that what we've recognized, we're, we're creating a, a network, a Midwest research semiconductor network. Intel calls it Silicon Heartland, transforming what used to be the Rust Belt. But now it's all on hold. The groundbreaking delayed indefinitely. Intel's CEO on CNBC this week. The idea of delaying a ceremonial announcement, you know, this sucks. At issue, the delay in Congress passing the CHIPS Act, including $52 billion in aid to the U.S. semiconductor industry. Intel also stands to pick up $2 billion in incentives from Ohio. Is it right for a company that made $20 billion in profits last year to be holding everyone hostage over incentives? 
I don't think they're holding anybody hostage. When we won, uh, they told us we're coming. But all the way through, they told us, if the CHIP Act passes, we will accelerate extremely fast. Indeed, Intel says it is still committed to this site in Ohio, but the CHIPS Act is the difference between a $20 billion investment over several years and $100 billion much faster. They, I don't think, wanted to be in a position where they would uh, say to Congress we're breaking ground and uh, Congress still hadn't passed the CHIP Act. Indeed, DeWine told me that uh, Intel is doing job fairs. They've met with homeowners in the area around the plant. And a spokesperson says that the company has actually begun construction. It's apparently not something that Intel wants us to see. They wouldn't let us on the site today. As they try to pressure Congress to move forward on a piece of legislation that CEO Pat Gelsinger calls perfect. We've got a lot more about all of this uh, on our special website, topstates.cnbc.com. 12 days away from the big reveal, where will I be on July 13th? Tune in and see. Kelly? My favorite time of the year. So just to be clear, Scott, $20 billion (laughs) plant without the CHIPS Act, $100 billion with it? That's basically what they're saying, yeah. And 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 so Ohio, Ohio has to kind of plan either way, uh, you know. And and that's that involves a lot of infrastructure. Part of the incentive package is about seven hundred million dollars in infrastructure improvements. And the governor told me that they're basically planning to overbuild no matter what. So there's going to be a whole lot of sunk costs. And if the the full blown hundred billion dollar investment doesn't come through, they could overbuild significantly. It's so fascinating. I can't imagine having to plan for that. Scott, thank you very much, our Scott Combe. Let's get a check on the markets as the Dow and S&P have turned back into positive territory. Dow's up 78 points. NASDAQ still down six. Up next, three buys and a bail for the back half of 2022. Our trader is betting that the pain is over for this tech stock, which has fallen 24% this year. We've got the trades next. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Three Buys into Bail, second half edition. Today, we're looking at some names that you should consider for your portfolio heading into the back half of 2022 and one name to stay away from. Joining me is Gina Sanchez, Chantico Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Gina, welcome. Still thinking about your Walgreens bail the other day. Looking pretty good after the week that they've had. So let's dive in. Your first buy today is Deer. The stock has had a rough first half, down 14%. They had solid profit this quarter. They had supply chain challenges, though. They raised the dividend. Why dear at a time when all these ag prices seem to be uh, pausing, shall we say? Well, we don't think that the that the food supply issues are going away, and we think that the pressure is continues to put pressure on farmers. This is a, also a company that has continued. I mean, the earnings have been stellar, um, so they have definitely proved themselves out, and the valuation for those earnings is actually quite good. And we think going into the second half of the year, investors are going to be looking for uh, investors are going to be looking for. Uh, We think investors are going to be looking uh, for valuation as well as demand, and we think that demand is going to go up because farmers have to get uh, have to get into the ag tech play, and deer is that play. That was extremely impressive continuation of a stream of thought while also silencing the phone. So that's your bull case on deer. Let's move on to lithium, which. 
you know, this again, it's kind of counterintuitive. Lit is the ETF. It had a rough first half down 15%. Only five of the stocks in the ETF are higher, and most of them are the Chinese names. Why does this one jump out to you? So this one jumped out to us because we actually think this is actually tied to the same pressure that we see that's pushing up deer. Um, some of it's coming, quite frankly, from the war in Ukraine, right? And so we think as we start to look at the potential for a frozen war, which is just a terrible situation, um, we think that, you know, the call that lithium, that lithium prices are coming down, we think that that's probably not the right call. We think that there's still going to be um, pressing, you know, pressing demand for, for um, supply. We think that exposure to lithium and lithium batteries is still going to be an interesting play. And so we actually added the ETF to our, um, to our portfolio. All right. And your third buy, a little less controversial. You do like Microsoft, yes? We love Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> okay, full stop. And, and look, Microsoft... Full stop. But but there's reasons, right? Microsoft has obviously a very enduring play. We think that cloud play doesn't go away. But we know that these are challenging times. This is a stock that had a pretty high valuation. But even despite that valuation, it has a solid balance sheet. And that balance sheet is going to look really good as we continue to see rights, uh, rates rising. Um, we also see it continues to pay a dividend and it continues to grow its dividend. Um, that's also attractive um, going into the back half. And we just think that this, this stock is just flipped now into to a value stock. We think that there is huge growth that just is no longer um, priced right, um, and we're going to keep holding it. All right, so let's move on from your three buys to your bail today. It's a name we don't talk about a lot. It's Discover Financial. It's down 17% this year on par with some of its competitors like MasterCard, Visa, and Amex. They also pay a 2.5% dividend. They do. They do. And this has actually been a great stock for us. We've owned this MasterCard and Visa. Um, but quite frankly, just this, we, we've been on the back half of, a, of the recovery um, going into this, you know, crazy first half of the year. Um, and the likelihood that as we as the economy softens and as we go into what might be a mild recession, these are the, the stocks that are probably going to have a hard time. Um, so although we've we've enjoyed the run, we're stepping away from this uh, this story. All right. I, I'm trying to leave it undiscovered or something like that for, for the next one to discover. Gina, thanks so much for your time today. Good to have you. Thank you, Kelly. Gina Sanchez, three buys and a bail. Coming up, gasoline prices down from their highs. We'll look at the fallout for energy stocks and the impact on the consumer. But will lingering sticker shock prove to be a boon finally for EVs and other green stocks in the second half? That is next. Before we go, as we embark on the second half of the year, the first half saw this growing divergence between traditional and clean energy and the returns. The traditional aims up 30 percent, the clean ones down 10. But high oil prices may help close, even reverse this gap. Pippa Stevens has the story. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, it's a tale of two energy sectors. That's oil, gas, and coal on one side, and new energy like wind and solar on the other. The divergence between old and new has widened this year. Oil and gas stocks have pulled back recently, but surged 29% so far in 2022 on the back of higher commodity prices. Renewable stocks are down 37%. 
Rising rates, rotation out of growth, and policy uncertainty have sent shares tumbling. Let's run through some of the numbers. Occidental, the big outperformer, more than doubling in 2022. Hess, Valero, Exxon, and Halliburton all up around 40%. But clean energy names like Sunrun, Sonova, Lithium Americas and Plug Power all sharply lower. Analysts remain bullish on old energy thanks to tight fundamentals. JP Morgan saying today that oil and gas stocks are the most attractive group in the market, especially after the recent weakness. Higher commodity prices could actually boost renewables, too, since it makes them cheaper in comparison. Meantime, supportive policies like an extension of the investment tax credit could also lift the group. But, Kelly, we've heard this narrative for a while now about near-term weakness, long-term opportunity, which really begs the question, you know, when will this trend, if and when will it shift? Right. If not now, when? <laughs> exactly. Pippa, thank you very much, Pippa Stevens. And high energy prices, by the way, have been one big headache for the transports. Now we have another West Coast port strike. We'll dig into the details and the implications on Power Lunch, which starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.